have a little look at the next passage we're going to look at in John today. Let's hear God's word. So John chapter 3 and verses 22 to 36. So John 3, verse 22 to 36. Well, it's going to be another reading as well, but, uh, or, uh, yeah, but I haven't, don't panic, Mark, I didn't ask you to put it up, so it's fine. <laughs> okay, so John 3, verse 22, let's hear God's word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, Look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him, and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. But the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. I'm going to just read as well uh, from Luke chapter 2, just the story of Simeon and Anna. I'm going to focus on John the Baptist, but just want to reference the presentation of Jesus in the temple following uh, the birth. So the present, the uh, purification and so on takes more than just a few days since we celebrated Christmas. Um, But nonetheless, we will read this, which is just on on the back of the birth of Jesus. So Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. 
When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Amen. May God bless reading of his word. Three years ago uh, this weekend, or around this time, uh, Ruth and I uh, were uh, focused on a wedding. <laughs> our daughter and uh, son-in-law, well, he wasn't our son-in-law then, but he is and has been for the last three years, Helen and Jamie got married in here on the 2nd of January, uh, which was lovely, but it did mean that Christmas and New Year were slightly overshadowed or overtaken that year just with families uh, gathering from the other side of the world because Jamie's Australian um, and hospitality and trying to fit Christmas and New Year in. But basically, uh, there was a wedding. There was a wedding. And actually, I was chatting when I was revisiting our highlights uh, of, of 2018, one of my highlights, hopefully Ruth's as well, uh, our daughter got married, our daughter Beth, who manages the cafe in here, got married to Heath, who is also Australian, uh, in, in April of this year. And, and Helen and Jamie actually are coming back to Scotland, back to the UK for three years, so we're looking forward to having them back with us on Thursday of this week. But it was at that wedding three years ago that our son-in-law, Jamie, introduced uh, his best friend and groomsman, Heath, uh, to the rest of the family who had come over to be his groomsman. Not his best man, actually, his groomsman. His brother was his best man. Uh, and so that was fine. And it was on the back of that wedding that our daughter, Beth, got to know Heath and then started uh, keeping in touch with Heath. And then Heath came back to visit Beth, and then Beth went to visit Heath. And anyway, long story short, they got married this year. So we now have two Australian sons-in-law. Um, thanks, Jamie. <laughs> What's the point in telling you all of that? Well, there's a few points, actually, related to John's gospel and to this passage. It's an image that John the Baptist himself uses about how he sees himself 
I don't think for a minute that when Jamie introduced uh, his best pal Heath to the family, he had any notion or inkling at that stage that he was introducing a future son-in-law uh, or a future brother-in-law or indeed a future husband to his new sister-in-law. He was just a friend. And yet from Beth's perspective, uh, Jamie's role as the new Australian brother-in-law over a period of time uh, faded and gave way to her new developing relationship with Heath. What we find in these two passages is the same principle and process. Not that of, uh, of uh, engagement and so on, but the principle, Ian, there's somebody at the door. Could you maybe just go and say hello or whatever, explain what's happening? And so there's a process where here in this passage, John recognizes that he has had a part to play, but his part must now give way to somebody else. His part must give way to uh, the coming and the rise of the Messiah, who Jesus, uh, John, has been the herald and the preparer for. In the same way, when we read those well-known words from Luke's gospel, which we find and we read at this time of year, we find Simeon and Anna, two characters who um, have spent some considerable time, we imagine. We don't know exactly how old Simeon is. But it's reasonable to conclude when he starts talking about in his prayer that, that Lord, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, that Simeon is at least at an age where he would expect that actually maybe his life can now gently draw to a close. The thing that was promised he has now seen, he's now held the fulfillment of a promise that God made in his own arms. And Anna, who lived to the stupendous age of 84, which seems just, you know, that's a kind of given in our society. When I was a kid in the 60s or the early 70s, uh, old age, if you lived to your high 70s, that was a good age. And then gradually it began to kind of nudge up to the the 80 or the over 80 mark. And, and, you know, now 80s, 90s, that's considered to be, you know, an average lifespan for a woman, certainly, less for a man. But in those days, life expectancy could be as low as high 40s. There was disease, there was poverty. And despite the fact that way back in the beginning of the Bible, we find these massive, you know, ages, Methuselah and all the others who lived for hundreds of years, in New Testament times, life expectancy uh, was considerably less than what we would consider it to be now. And so for Anna to be 84 years, it is remarkable, which is why her age makes it into the pages of Scripture. And so here's this process of preparation, of, of holding something, of carrying something. Of, of holding on to a promise, of being given a task to do, and of fulfilling that task, whether it be to, 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 to keep believing, as, as uh, Simeon had done, or whether it be, in the case of John the Baptist, to exercise his ministry of preparation, 
Being a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Being the one who called people to get ready and prepare. And I suppose as you look back on 2018, you will see a, a, a kind of rhythm of comings and goings. I mean, for, for Simeon, this was a, 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 a coming and going moment. An expectation that something he'd, he'd held on to, believed in and longed for for a period of time, now reached its climax where prophetically, because how else could he hold a baby that just belonged to two young parents and have any idea who this baby was or would become? And so both Simeon and Anna have a, a prophetic assurance and understanding from the Holy Spirit that this child is significant. That this child is the fulfillment of promise. That this child is what it was leading up to. And because of that, both Simeon and Anna could consider their promise fulfilled, their mission accomplished, the task completed, and that they then could consider job done. Job done. Simeon could peacefully offer himself up to the Lord to take him whenever he wanted. He could peacefully, or Anna could peacefully, go her way after a long life of 84 years, knowing that the thing that she had held in her heart, she had seen and spoken out. And John, who understands himself, as the, the, the friend of the bridegroom. Now, this isn't the best man so much as this is the one who sets up the date. <laughs> this is the one who makes the introduction. This is the one who prepares the way in the same way that Jamie, our son-in-law, prepared the way through his friendship with Heath for Beth to find her husband. And I wonder... As because we always do at the end of one year and the beginning of another. You know, this process of, of uh, recognizing that some things are done and fulfilled and completed. That there'll be some things for you in 2018 that we, we just say are, are done and completed. Personally in our lives, stages that we've reached in life. There will be people at the end of this year that you have grown into relationship with and that are part of your circle now and that you will go forward with in 2019 and, and there will people, there'll be people for all sorts of reasons with whom the journey will continue without them because they've gone to glory, because they've moved away, because your circles don't interlock anymore. The rhythm of our lives, the journey of our lives is just the story of moving on through and leaving some things behind and recognizing what is fulfilled, completed, and past. And how do we build on that and what comes next? So Dean can tell us happily about his graduation, which he leaves behind in 2018 as a milestone, a mark, a moment of, of success, triumph, and achievement. And 2019, as he moves away from that milestone, is about how we build, how he builds. And so John 
is baptizing out in the countryside. And Jesus is baptizing out as well, although chapter 4 verse 2 tells us that it wasn't actually Jesus who baptized, but it was his disciples. But nonetheless, Jesus and his disciples were baptizing. And John was baptizing at a place that archaeologists are still not 100% sure where it was, but a place that's here listed at Anon near Salem in the Jordan Valley. So you've got the dead, sorry, you've got the Sea of Galilee up here, you've got the Dead Sea down here, and the Jordan River which connects the two. And so about halfway between the two, it is estimated that in that area, that's where Anon near Salem was. People were coming to be baptized. People were coming for this baptism of repentance, putting their hands up and saying, and we've already looked at this in John's gospel, putting their hands up and saying, I recognize, I need cleansing. I need forgiveness. Apparently, ceremonial cleansing was, it was a big deal. What was the right way to do it? How many times did you dip? What kind of water? The stone jars of the wedding at Cana in Galilee were apparently stone jars because stone was, uh, the, kind, was the best material for keeping water ritually pure. And therefore, ceremonial washing What can I do to make myself clean in the eyes of God was a big deal. And John is offering this baptism that says to people, come and and confess your sins. And we're told because it's what zealous believers do, right? We're told that... uh, there was a little bit of a theological dispute with some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. What's the best way to do it? What's the right way to do it? How many times? What kind of vessels? What prayers do you see? What's the best time of day? Do you pour it? What vessel should you use? And so on. And because the making of rules in the life of the church and of religious people, there is no end. (laughs) There were all sorts of different beliefs and theologies and practices about what was the the right way to be absolutely uh, sure that you were getting it right. I suppose it's, it's the same kind of mirror that we find in the different denominations and, and expressions of church, right? What's the right way? What's the right way? Whose preaching is most accurate? Whose preaching is most faithful? Whose practice in terms of what they choose to do and and don't do, what clothes they wear or don't wear, where they go, how they live, who is getting it right? And sadly, so often, as I'm sure we all know, that the, the history of the church and of feuds between Christian denominations is a story of people saying, no, we're right and you're wrong. People emphasizing one part of the whole theology of the kingdom and saying this is the really important part and we're getting it right. It's just exactly the kind of of spat that we find here where we've got some people saying, no, we know what God likes best and we're doing it right. But of course, what none of them could offer 
with a baptism of repentance or ceremonial washing, what none of them could actually give was forgiveness itself. What none of them could actually offer was the grace and the forgiveness of God. And and we get so stewed up, sadly, we still do it in the church, so stewed up about trying to be right, trying to understand God best, please God best, impress God the most. And we make it all about what we do or what we must do or what we have to do or how our actions, our practices, our rituals, our words are the right ones and the best ones and will give us the best access to God. I read that in one commentary that typically there were, there were all these uh, arguments and divisions between, uh, between different schools of thinking and teaching. And what this commentator said was that often the rabbis themselves were great friends. It was just their disciples. <laughs> How true. Often the ones who are most confident in their relationship with God by the love and the grace of God towards us don't need to fight or scrap about whether we're more right or less right than other people. But the disciples, the zealous, the zealots, I've been one of those. I've been one of those certainly in my early 20s or my when I first got serious about my commitment to the Lord, I was absolutely, you know, all out, flat out, trying to work out exactly how many angels could dance on the head of a pin. And all of it is just our trying to understand God, our trying to pin God down, our trying to squeeze, to squeeze God in the box in the framework of our understanding what we believe to be right over wrong and it all goes back to the wrong tree it all goes back to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil where we took upon ourselves the decision making powers of what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad because the difference with the baptism that Jesus could offer in the kingdom that he was preaching was that it was the gift and the grace of God. I've not really noticed this before, and as we go through, perhaps I will notice it more this time, but certainly in these opening chapters of John, marriage and family life features a lot. In chapter 1, we read that the Word became flesh. We read that Jesus came into the world And he came into the world in order that those who believed in his name might be given the right to become children of God. Children of God. Adopted sons and daughters who might become and be the bride that the father was giving to the son. And and the marriage motif is picked up spectacularly for us in the wedding in Cana in Galilee, where it's in the context of a wedding, John tells us, that Jesus performs his first miracle. 
in the context of a celebration where Jesus embarks on his preaching ministry by declaring with this overflowing surplus of water turned into wine that he is looking for a bride for himself. That there will be a bride and there will be a wedding celebration. And this first miracle we'll find, as we saw when we looked at the passage, we'll find its culmination and its full expression where at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then, of course, we find in chapter 3 this reference, this illustration that John uses. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. This mature, humble, giving way to Jesus this mature, humble recognition that my part, still being played out, is giving way to Jesus. As Simeon and Anna's part was giving way to the arrival and the coming of the baby that they recognized with prophetic insight as Jesus. It's interesting that in chapter 4, Jesus, as we'll see, speaks to the woman of Samaria. And what is the big crux? What is the breaking point? What is the moment of revelation for her when Jesus tells her that you've had five husbands and the man that you're now with is not your husband? Here's a woman that in terms of earthly matrimony has been disappointed and hurt and damaged. And Jesus' invitation to her is to become the bride of a different bridegroom. And so this marriage theme just points us forward. Jesus had come not to settle theological spats or to roll up his sleeves and weigh in on the debate on ceremonial washing. Jesus had come to wash, to give to people the forgiveness that they could never earn or achieve, however right their theology was, however certain they were of the theological dancing angels of their baptismal practice or their ceremonial washing. Jesus had come instead to be the one from above, the one who's from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. But Jesus, Jesus has come in order that those who believe in the Son might have eternal life as a gift, might find forgiveness as an act of his grace and generosity. And so as we go into a new year, I want to go into a new year with an attitude 
that reminds me that the older I get, the less I know. <laughs> the older I get, the less there are certainties to battle over. And that it's much more about the grace of God and the first commandment, which is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Not that theology or good doctrine, not that knowing and understanding and applying the scriptures does not matter because it absolutely does. But when we use our Bibles to hit other people or to justify dividing and carving up the body of Christ, then we've, we've missed the main point. We're back to doing what John and his disciples, or rather what John's disciples were doing with that individual who started a debate about ceremonial washing. We're trying to work it out and get it right and please God with our efforts. And the reality of gospel is that it hinges utterly and completely on what Jesus came to do. To invite all those who would believe in him to be children of God. To come in pursuit of a bride that he might take to be his own. To come to reveal himself And so, I want to go into 2019 with a renewed sense that actually there are things that I can do, there are things that I must do, there are things that I'm called to do and be part of. But more importantly, there is a limit to what I can do, and He must become greater, and I must become less. That if I can't see that anything that I do or I'm about or involved in is only serving him and pointing to him and that ultimately it's all about him, then I have missed the point. And the same is true for you. That who we are and how we live and what we do is, as John the Baptist's ministry was intended, to point to Jesus. He must become greater. I must become less. So what are the implications of that for where you live and the people you live beside? What are the implications of that for the people in your family or the people that you work alongside or study with? What are the implications of that? And that's not just about our conduct, it's also about our expectation. Because I have to look and keep looking as minister in this place and say, okay, Lord, this was your idea. I hope, I trust. You called me and Ruth to come here. You called these people to come here. What is it you want to do? Because Simeon didn't steal the baby in order that he could take the baby all around the villages around Jerusalem and say, see, my uh, promise in what God said to me is true. And here's the baby. Here's the baby that proves that I believe the right thing. See, sometimes we want Jesus to prove or validate or vindicate us. Or be the, 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 the genie that answers all our wishes. 
or the one who gives us whatever we want, and actually he must become greater. I must become less. So how can I ensure in my life that my life points to him and I'm not making him point to me? How can we ensure that we are making, that we are seeking that the ministry and the life and the kingdom pursuit of our fellowship here points to Jesus and doesn't point to SGT? How can we ensure that we're not about spats with other churches or denominations or congregations who are our brothers and sisters? Because Jesus did not come to divide. He came to unite. He came to have one bride, not like some moony wedding with a million brides. Some of you are too young to know what moony weddings are probably. I haven't heard so much about them for a while. There used to be these mass weddings. Strange cult. Jesus has come to have one family, one people, one bride. And John had the insight, the wisdom, and the humility to pass to Jesus, to honor and recognize him, and to recognize that he was and is and would be all that would matter. That he was the one who came speaking from above. John knew that his limitations were earthbound, as your limitations and my limitations are earthbound. Apart from that which God shows us or or reveals to us as he did with Simeon and Anna, our perspective is largely horizontal. And we will not see perfectly. The one who comes from heaven is above all. And so go into 2019. And if there are things that are beyond you or you're struggling with or you're stuck with, well, remember anew, believe anew that he has come not just to invite you to repent, although that's what he does ask us to do, but also to trust him to change us and do for us what we cannot do by ourselves. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. John didn't try to move Jesus' ministry on for him or tell him what to do. He recognized him and he graciously yielded to him. Where in fact John had every reason. He had a massive following of his own. And he had a different heart, a prideful spirit. He might easily have gone into competition. It's certainly the undertone of the plaintive comment in verse 26. Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. not about who has the most. It's about who is the Lord's and who is in yielded, loving, faithful submission to the Lord who is advancing his kingdom. And we don't know what 2019 will bring personally 
for us as a nation globally. But what we can know and believe is that 2,000 years on, there are billions of Christians around the world who are holding fast to the promises of God, which have stood the test of time. The word of God that continues to inspire, transform, challenge, give hope, life, and healing. And so that's our guiding light. He is our guiding light as we go into a new year. What are the things that with Simeon and Anna and even John we leave behind? We recognize our part is played, our job is done, that's time to move on and do the next thing. What are the things where we simply need to press on into 2019 recognizing I'm called to this, but I can't bring about the kingdom. I can't bring about transformation in people's lives. I can just point to Jesus. And what are the areas in your own life where instead of trying to fix it or solve it or make it better, get your own ceremonial washing down pat, perhaps instead you need to come to Jesus in that place of brokenness and failure and guilt or shame or whatever it is and say, Lord, I can't. I can go as far as the repentance that says I'm sorry, but only you can bring the transformation of your word and of your spirit. But that's more than enough. Let's pray together.